The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians, God's Call to Church Action. This is part 10, Honesty in the Ministry, Transparency of the Ministry of the Gospel. Our text is 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. I want us to think especially of what we're going to call the transparency of the ministry or honesty in the ministry. I can't imagine a more searching and yet helpful passage in all the Word of God concerning the ministry of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only to those of us who are preachers, but to you in the home, in the business world, in the Sunday school class, in college, at school, wherever you are honesty in the ministry. Now, as we observed in our study last week, chapter 3 concludes in a blaze of glory. Paul's closing word there is, we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are changed, transfigured, transformed into that same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. And we saw that the glory of the gospel represented a strength of confidence, a sense of permanence, and a source of radiance, which utterly transformed his life and ministry. It is therefore with a kind of awesomeness that he goes on to describe the nature of this ministry, which he had received and to which he was totally committed. In Paul's view, the glory of the gospel demanded an honesty in the ministry. And this was at total variance with the corruptors of the word to whom he's already made reference in these earlier chapters. Yes, corruptors of the word who had plagued the church at Corinth, and we may add, have plagued, plagued the church of Jesus Christ down through the centuries ever since. So Paul's specific theme in these verses immediately before us is the transparency of the ministry. And here is quite a study, as you will see. No less than five points call for attention. Let's look at the first one. There is a transparency of dedication in the ministry of the gospel. Catch the pathos and feeling in these opening words. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, he says, as we have received mercy, we faint not. As we've recognized already, the apostle is reveling in the glory of the gospel. This mighty message that had transformed his life still captures his mind and heart and will. And as far as he's concerned, nothing less than absolute dedication is worthy of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in his view, we need two things if we're going to be totally dedicated to that ministry. Here is the first one. Look at it. The mercy of God. Verse 1. The mercy of God. Seeing therefore we have received this ministry as we have received mercy. We faint not. Paul was ever conscious of his utter unworthiness and at the same time of the amazing mercy of God. You remember in his letter to Timothy he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. And then he adds, but I obtained mercy. But 
I obtained mercy, the mercy of God. Because of this mercy, he could do no less than dedicate himself unreservedly to God and to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, he makes mercy the very basis for his appeal for total dedication when he writes to the saints at Rome. You remember in that classic passage where he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. No one can study that verse or this particular passage before us here without clearly seeing that the reason why some people never dedicate themselves wholly to God is because they've never appreciated, still less appropriated, the mercy of God. I wonder what would happen if I came down into the pews this morning and sat with every individual soul here and asked what you thought of the mercies of God, whether you have ever appreciated what God did in Christ when he bent over, as it were, to the lowest depths in order to extend mercy to you. No one can understand the nature of the mercy of God without saying, oh God, if that's how you loved me, if that's why you saved me from perdition, it's all of mercy and I want to yield everything to thee. This life is going to be lived as a total ministry in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul not only found rest and peace in the mercy of God, but also notice in the courage of God. Look at that verse again. As we have received mercy, we faint not. The words here imply the maintenance of a holy courage, says one scholar. Already he had exhorted the saints at Corinth, you remember, to watch, stand fast in the faith, quit themselves like men, and to be strong. He knew that the demands of the ministry would call for supernatural strength and courage. But as we've already seen in these studies, God's commands are always his enablings. A man who is conscious of a great task can do amazing things, especially when he leans heavily on the mercy of God and the courage of God. One of the greatest works of musical genius is Handel's Messiah. We're told that the whole work was composed in some 24 days. And that during that whole period, Handel neither ate or slept. He was so caught up with the grandeur and the greatness of this mighty work, which had so captured his soul, he must finish it. And the strange thing about it is this. The harder he worked, the stronger he became. Why? Because in that moment of inspiration, something was happening in his life, which Paul is describing here. He received mercy. He received courage. The Bible tells us, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. And there isn't one of us here who doesn't, doesn't know that moment in human experience when we tend to faint, lose heart, let go. It's in that moment that the mercy of God and the courage of God are ministered when we appropriate what God has provided for the ministry. This is the dedication Paul is speaking about, the transparency of dedication. He said, I want you to understand it's nothing to do with me. It isn't that I'm some great apostle, some giant mind, so totally committed because God can't do without me. There's nothing of that here. 
He says, I'm dedicated and I want to be transparent about it. The reason I'm dedicated is the mercy of God. The reason I'm dedicated is the courage of God. See it clearly, transparently. This is honesty in the ministry. It isn't that I want to say to God, I have a talent here that you can't do without. I have a voice here that you can't possibly delete from your list of voices. No, God, I'm dedicated utterly and completely for two reasons. Your mercy, your courage. You've given a ministry, but with it, mercy. You've given a ministry, but with it, a courage so that I faint not. Christian, how is your dedication? Is it absolute? Is it complete? Can you honestly say it's because of the mercy of God, because of the courage of God? But come with me further. Not only the transparency of dedication, but look again. There is the transparency of commendation in the ministry of the gospel. Verse 2, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Without question, the apostle is here referring to what he's already been talking about in the previous chapter 3 and verse 1, letters of commendation. His critics were accusing him of dishonesty, craftiness, and deceit, both in life and service. But in this verse, he not only vindicates himself in the Lord, but defines the transparency of commendation in the ministry of the gospel. And here I want you to follow me very closely. It's one thing to know a transparency of dedication. It's another thing to know a transparency of commendation. What does this mean? Observe carefully, first of all, that it's a walk that pleases God. A walk that pleases God. Verses 1 and 2. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness. You see, what we are is more important than what we do. We see this plainly taught in the opening words of this verse. Paul is careful to record that there came a moment in his life, notice, past tense, when he renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. This means, literally, that he parted company with anything calculated to make him blush or become ashamed as an honest man. That's the meaning of the sentence. From that moment in his life, he could honestly say before God that his face never burned with shame, never blushed with shame, because he had done something that was dishonest. A walk that pleases God. There was a holiness about his life. A holiness about his life. He had renounced the hidden things of darkness. But with that holiness, notice there was an openness about his life. An openness about his life. The word craftiness here is used in chapter 11, verse 3, to describe the manner in which the serpent beguiled Eve in the Garden of Eden. In Luke 20 and verse 23, it's employed to illustrate the subtle cunningness with which the scribes and Pharisees tried to tempt and trick the Lord Jesus in the days of his flesh. Paul was determined that he would never have anything to do with shamelessness and underhandedness in his walk with God. It must be a walk which pleases God in holiness and openness. And I want to say, my friend, however much you may claim to be utterly dedicated to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with that dedication there must be a commendation. And that life of yours in its walk must be holy and open. 
holy in the sense that you have renounced anything that would cause shame to our blessed Lord. And more than that, that there's an openness about your life. There's nothing hidden. You're not holding back anything, but you're open to him and open to one another. And people can see you as being utterly transparent. I think one of the things that breaks fellowship more than anything else is that hiddenness of some people in which you know very well they're holding back something. They're holding back something. They won't be open. They won't be transparent. A walk that pleases God. But alongside of that, there must be a work which honors God. Look at verse 2, not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, this statement here deserves more attention and careful thought than I could ever give it this morning, but I'm going to ask you to follow me very carefully. I don't think anything's more relevant in our hour than this word right here. Look at it very carefully. For God to be honored in the work of the gospel, there must be an integrity in the exposition of truth and a sincerity in the application of truth. Both these thoughts are included here. Handling the word of God deceitfully is literally corrupting or adulterating the message of the gospel. How easy this can be done in the pulpit, in the Sunday school, yes, and even in the business office. It takes very little to dilute the severity of the gospel in order to make ourselves popular with our hearers. It takes very little to mix our message with human philosophy. It takes very little to misrepresent the truth through shallow and shoddy study and exegesis. So there is a need for integrity in the exposition of the truth. Anybody can make anything of the Bible if they chain the verses to suit their own convenience. This is where all the cults and where all error starts. Error is a wrong balance of truth. This is handling the word of God deceitfully. This is what Paul was so concerned about as he gave his final message to young Timothy when he said to him, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Handling the word of truth deceitfully is handling the word of God in such a fashion that it suits what I want to say instead of what God wants to say. And that's our whole problem today. But with that integrity in the exposition of truth, there's something even more piercing and searching. It's this matter of sincerity in the application of truth. See what it says. By manifestation of the truth, we are to commend ourselves to every man's intellect? No. To every man's fancy? No. To every man's taste? No. By the manifestation of the truth, we are to commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This is a statement of supreme importance. In the last analysis, our responsibility in public preaching or personal witnessing is not to tickle the intellectual fancies of men and women, but rather to strike home to the conscience. As John Stott once said in my hearing, it is no business of the preacher to make the gospel respectable. As servants of the Lord, we must command our hearers to repent and believe the gospel. And I might add, we're to do our task in the sight of God. Now that's not popular today. That runs contrary to the spirit of so-called tolerance and compromise and give and take and dialogue. But I find that nowhere spoken of in the Word of God. The preacher of the Word, the witness in his home, in his business place, in his school, is not only to walk 
pleasing God, but to work, honoring God. And he's not to handle the word of God deceitfully in order to adjust it to his own use. No, no, no. He's to preach the word of God as it stands and to witness to that word. And he's to apply it in such a way that there's a manifestation of the truth, not a hiding of the truth, but a manifestation of the truth, bringing home the truth to the conscience in the sight of God, not appealing to mind as such, or even to heart as such, or will as such. All those will be involved in a moment, but to the conscience in the sight of God. This is the transparency of commendation. And my friend, you are not transparent, and I am not transparent when we do not fulfill those conditions. A walk that pleases God, a work that honors God. But let's hasten to our third point. There is a transparency of opposition in the ministry of the gospel. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Verses 3 and 4. Now, I'm not surprised to find Paul saying this in the very next verse. Not surprised at all. No Christian can preach the whole counsel of God as I've been describing it without being brought into conflict with the forces of Satan. This explains why the gospel is hidden to those who are lost. We're up against real opposition, and this opposition is not a mere idea or a notion, as some people would have us believe. On the contrary, it's a conflict with Satan himself. And if I am going to demonstrate dedication and commendation in the ministry of the gospel, I am going to face opposition. And that's true of you. And I want you to look at this opposition for a moment. Notice we're up against the very person of Satan. The person of Satan. Verse 4. The God of this world, or more literally, the God of this age. Bengal, one of the great fathers of the church, says, This is a great and horrible description of the devil. Jesus describes Satan as the prince of this world. Paul, in another place, speaks of him as the prince of the power of the air. John tells us that the whole world lieth in the evil one. So we see that this God is not a phantom or an illusion, but rather a real and mighty personality. So great is he that even Michael, the archangel, would not use abusive terms when he disputed with him, as recorded in Jude 9. It was no ordinary wicked spirit who could dare to tempt our Lord Jesus Christ by offering him the kingdoms of this world. And remember, he was speaking quite sincerely and truly and accurately when he said the kingdoms of this world. He'd taken them over. One day they're going to be taken back and only one person is going to reign universally and that is our beloved Savior Jesus Christ. King of kings and Lord of lords. But we're up against Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this age. He is ruling through the kingdoms of this world. The person of Satan. Not only the person of Satan, but will you notice in the second place the power of Satan. We're up against not only his person, but his power. Notice his power. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Though originally a creature from the hand of God, the devil is a supernatural being. He has the power to blind. When the devil is ultimately given unrestrained license after the rapture of the church, he will have unusual power, not only to effect lying wonders and deceivableness, but to bring people into such darkness that they can never, never again see the truth. 
But even now, in some strange and mysterious way, he has the ability to render ineffective the faculties of spiritual perception in all those who are out of Christ. As long as men are on the road to perdition, the gospel is veiled to them. As St. Augustine puts it, blindness of heart is both a sin and a punishment of sin and a cause of sin. If I didn't know this, I don't know what I would ever be able to do as an evangelist. But I've had to bow to this truth and recognize that my task is not fighting with flesh and blood, not trying to communicate a message to reach the conscience of men and women and find myself utterly helpless, but rather to go even beyond that. True, I must manifest the truth in all its accuracy and authority, but only God can break through to hearts of men and women. Why? Because they're blinded. They're blinded. This explains why cultured, intelligent, educated, charming, sweet men and women, boys and girls, somehow or other, laugh at you when you talk about the gospel. Why? Their minds are veiled, blinded. They've been blinded by a supernatural power. They've been blinded. They can't see. We're up against the power of Satan as well as the person of Satan. But more than that, notice the very purpose of Satan. Verse 4, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. These words describe not only a purpose but a result. As we've noticed in an earlier passage, it is given to you and to me to radiate the gospel. To radiate the gospel. As we with open face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, by the Spirit of the Lord, so out of our lives the gospel shines in radiance. But even though that is true, the purpose of Satan is to dim that radiance or extinguish the light altogether. So while his power is mainly directed to the unregenerate, to keep them blind, not only to blind them, but to keep them blind, his purpose is also to dim the radiance of Christian witness so that the light doesn't penetrate that blindness. And he's mighty effective. You know that as well as I do in our great city. How transparent Paul is in exposing the opposition which belongs to the ministry. Oh, that God would give us grace to be realists in our work of reaching men and women with the gospel. How earnest and diligent we may be in witnessing to Jesus Christ in our homes or wherever we find ourselves in the business world outside, we've got to recognize that just as diligent and just as earnest is the God of this age, the God of this age, the person of Satan, the power of Satan, the purpose of Satan, to blind men's minds and to dim our own radiance of witness so that the effectiveness of our witness doesn't break through. Honesty in the ministry. Here is a man being honest in the ministry, honest in the matter of his dedication, honest in the matter of his commendation, honest in the matter of opposition. There's opposition. Beloved friends, as we near this wonderful season of the year, and we see commercialism blinding men's minds and hearts across our city so that they don't hear the carols or leave alone understand the message. They don't see the babe amidst the tinsel. Remember... The explanation is the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel shining through the face of Jesus Christ should reach them. But look again at point four. 
there is a transparency of proclamation in the ministry of the gospel. Opposition, though there is, there's a message, a message to be proclaimed. And he says right here in this glorious statement, which could be the motto of any preacher any day, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Already the apostle had told the saints at Corinth that he was determined to know nothing amongst them, save Christ and him crucified. But here he repeats himself in order to underscore the fact that there is no other message, there is no other message than Christ Jesus the Lord. That's the message. That's the supreme message. That's the heart of the message. He had been accused again and again of egotism, of self-centeredness, but he utterly denies this, denies this by saying, I had no other message. I didn't preach myself. I didn't preach my philosophy. I didn't give my opinions on social matters. I didn't give my judgment on the world conditions. Those are taken as understood by any intelligent people. I came as a preacher, not as a reformer. I came as a preacher. And as a preacher, I have no other message than Christ Jesus the Lord. And I want to tell you that he had walked into a city which was highly intellectual. So much so that he feared and trembled. I came to you with much fear and trembling. So much so that he wouldn't even rise to quote their philosophers. I came not to you with the wisdom of man, he says. In fact, I've discovered, he said, as I've waited upon God, that God has decreed that man by philosophy, by wisdom, shall not know God. I didn't come to you even with a scientific method. For the Jews require a sign, a sign. A sign is the product of science. But he said, I didn't come to you with that. I came preaching the cross. And oh, to God, that I could say a word to my brother ministers across my country today and across the world today. Oh, that I could say something to you who are witnesses here, that our task supremely, whatever relatedness our message may have to the outside world, is not to name problems as such, not to be involved in side issues. Our task, our proclamation is Christ Jesus the Lord. And if you deny it, tackle this text and explain it other way than what I'm explaining today. Now, what is this message? Look at it carefully. Christ Jesus is Lord of salvation. Christ Jesus is Lord of salvation. We preach not ourselves, but first Jesus, the Lord. Jesus, the Lord. Names and titles of our Lord cannot be lightly passed over in a verse like this. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is affirming that what is the essential message of the gospel is the message of a Savior. The name Jesus spells out salvation. At his birth, the angel said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Here is a name which tells us that Jehovah saves. So Jesus is Lord of salvation. And know the 12th chapter of this very epistle where he says, No man, no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Jesus is Lord of salvation. There is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby they must be saved. There is no other salvation save that in Jesus Christ. And this is not social salvation. This is not corporate salvation. It is individual salvation to him that believes. Jesus Christ is Lord of salvation. But notice again, Christ Jesus is Lord of sanctification. We preach not ourselves, but Christ is Lord. Not only Jesus is Lord, but Christ is Lord. As the anointed one, as the Messiah, Christ is our indwelling sanctifier. It is interesting to observe that when Paul stresses the indwelling and sanctifying life 
of Jesus, he refers to him as Christ. He employs the title of Christ. For instance, Christ, our sanctification. Christ in you, except ye be reprobates. Christ liveth in me, he says. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is thus the Lord of sanctification to all who yield to his sovereignty and sufficiency. But notice in the third place the fullness of this service and ministry which he is exercising. He is Lord not only of salvation, he is Lord not only of sanctification, but Christ Jesus is Lord of service. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Our message cannot end with salvation and sanctification. It must lead to service. And if Christ is Lord of salvation and sanctification, then he is Lord of service. And Paul revels in the fact that by submission to the saving and sanctifying lordship of Jesus Christ, he'd become a servant not only of Christ, but of the church. And in this sense, of course, our message has a relevance. Our message is Christ Jesus the Lord. Salvation first, sanctification second, service last, and through service to our community, to our world. That's God in action. Here then is a rounded message. Salvation, sanctification, service. And when you've reduced everything to its minimum content, that's what we have. Salvation, sanctification, service. The transparency of our proclamation. But finally, and most important of all, is this fifth point here. Look at it again. There is a transparency of revelation in the ministry of the gospel. A transparency of revelation in the ministry of the gospel. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As is so characteristic of the apostle's writings, he reaches another climax right here. At the end of chapter 3, he reached a climax. We all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into that same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Here is another climax. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Everything else he has said contributes to the transparency and glory of the gospel. But ultimately, its effectiveness in changing men's lives depends not upon you or me, but upon God himself. Only he can command the light to shine into darkness. Only he can bring the revelation of his truth home to men's consciences and minds and hearts and will. And Paul illustrates this in three ways. First of all, there is the light of creation. The light of creation. Look at the first part of the text. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Without doubt, this is a reference to Genesis 1 and 3, where God commanded light to shine upon a dark and disordered world. And in that light, we live and move and have our being. Not as we're being told today in our schoolrooms, did the world come into being by a fortuitous concourse of atoms. God spake and the universe came into existence. And by his speaking, he maintains those orbits and those precisions and those movements in absolute poise. 
And just as he spake and the universe came into existence, he commanded and light broke through into chaos and darkness. And you and I live and move and have our being. Why? Because the light is shining. God commanded that light to shine. It's God who did it. Man didn't lift a little finger to do it. God originated it. It came out of God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's illustrating a point. There is the light of creation, but it's God who commanded it. Now then, since that light finds its source entirely in God, there is another light Paul is speaking of here. Not only the light of creation, but there is the light of conversion. God has shined in our hearts. God has shined in our hearts. Paul had actually experienced this outshining of redemption's light on the Damascus Road, you remember. He saw light above the brightness of the noonday sun. And in that light of light, he saw Jesus Christ, not only as the head of the church, not only as the sovereign king, but as his own personal savior. And moved by the Holy Spirit, he said, Lord, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And calling upon Jesus as Lord, he in that moment became wonderfully converted. Wonderfully converted. And in that light he recognized the glory of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Chrysostom reminds us that God commanded light to shine at the dawn of creation. But when it comes to the experience of conversion, God himself shines. For creation he commanded it. For conversion... He shines himself. He himself comes into our lives. What a glorious thought. As the light of the world, Jesus himself stands outside the door of the human heart. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And that can happen in your life and your life and your life right here this morning. Jesus himself, the light of the world, he who came at Christmas time, he whose light still shines, stands outside the door of your life. And to open that door is to have him come in himself. It's in this sense that John means in his prologue that Christ is the light of men. The light of men. It's in this sense that he says later in his gospel, quoting our Savior, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The light of conversion. But I want to come back to where Paul obviously wants to bring us. The light of creation, the light of conversion. But in the third place, there is the light of reflection. God has shined in our hearts. What for? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we're right back to chapter 3 and verse 18. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. The face of of Jesus Christ, the face of Jesus Christ. Paul here undoubtedly catches up this thought. You'll remember that he's told us that we all with open face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into that same image from glory to glory. And the light of conversion leads to the light of reflection. Having received the light, we now reflect the light. As true ministers of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we behold the face of Christ and then we go out to reflect the face of Christ. And what people are looking for all over this Christmas time, what people are going to look for in your life and my life as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the light of God 
revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, but reflected in the lives of you and me. Herein is the transparency of the ministry. Paul has given us, in six verses, astonishing teaching on this matter of honesty in the ministry. He has confronted us with the transparency of dedication, commendation, opposition, proclamation, revelation in the ministry of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How we need to claim that divine mercy and covet that divine courage to be true ministers of our Savior in this dark world. Only such a ministry as this gives God an opportunity to demonstrate passion, mission, and action in the world of today. What I want to ask my heart this morning, as I ask yours, is simply this. Is my dedication absolutely transparent? Is it absolutely transparent? Is it a walk that pleases God? Is it a work that honors God? Is my commendation likewise transparent? Am I absolutely clear on the matter of opposition? Who am I fighting against? Is my proclamation Christ and Christ only? Or have I shifted my center in the message of the gospel? Is Christ still the Lord of salvation? Is Christ still the Lord of sanctification? Is Christ still the Lord of service? Am I absolutely transparent about the revelation of the gospel? Do I still think that I can effect conversions any more than I could bring a universe into existence by an act of creation? Isn't my task just to reflect him because it's that light which breaks into hearts? It's God who commands. It's God who shines. It's God who reflects through me the message of the gospel. Am I ready and willing to give God a chance to work in my life in such a way that God is in business in me and through me? If your heart echoes with mine, amen, Lord, do this. Then let your prayer be, and mine also. O light divine, shine through thy holy word, I pray, that seeing light I may obey. O light divine, shine in my darkest heart, I pray, till pure is what I do, and say, O light divine, shine out to all the world, I pray, show men the truth, the life, the way. O oh, light divine, shine through my yielded life, I pray, that Jesus may be seen today. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee for this tremendous word coming to us down through the centuries by the power of the Holy Spirit to show us what is in fact the nature of the ministry to which we're committed in this church as a corporate body, to which we're committed as individuals, wherever we come from. Oh, we pray that in a way we've never understood before, there may be a transparency about our ministry, in dedication, in commendation, even in opposition, in proclamation, in revelation. And grant that in our lives and through our lives, Jesus Christ may be seen. Oh, our prayer this morning is, make me a blessing, make me a blessing. Out of my life, may Jesus shine. Make me a blessing, oh, Savior, I pray. Make me a blessing to someone today. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, 
who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.